how about we don't try and make food perfect because it's not perfect, just like life's not perfect. If you're recycling, that's awesome. But you also need to look at all these other pieces and you don't have to be doing them perfectly. The first step is reduce, then reuse, then recycle. They are in order. Get inspired by people fighting to make this world better for everyone. This is Unwasted with Imperfect. Dana Gunders, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Riley. So good to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. You're someone I've honestly wanted to interview for a while because you're just an expert that I really admire and respect. And I think your work and research into the causes and consequences of food waste really shook things up in a positive way. And I think we've seen since your first report came out in 2012, so much positive development and further research and entrepreneurship around food waste. So First off, thank you for doing that work. I think it's really bearing fruit for everybody. But I'd love to kind of time travel a bit back to 2012. You know, you, you had been at the NRDC, National Resources Defense Council, for a while. And while you were there, you decided to start working on what would become a pretty groundbreaking report. This report in 2012 that found that 40% of our food supply was going to waste in America. Can you share a bit about how, how did this report come to be? Oh yeah. Um, so I, I had been working on a project with the fruit and vegetable industry uh, and it was around sustainability and we were looking at different issues of, um, you know, energy use, water use, et cetera. And I, and I, among other things, started leading the waste group. And that was really meant to look at waste on farms in terms of kind of um, plastics and other, you know, physical waste, right? Um, and there's actually a lot of plastics involved in farming. And sadly, it, there is a, a decent amount of waste created. So it was meant to look at, you know, what can we do about that? Can that be recycled? And as I started looking into waste on farms, I kind of stumbled upon these reports that had staggering numbers. And I was like, wow, what? You know, 40% of food's going to waste? Is that possible? And like 20 percent of the water in this country going to food that would never get eaten, you know, and it really surprised me. Um, and so I started going back to the farmers and being like, hey, I just read this thing and it says that this much is going to waste. Is that like, do, is that possible? And you think that's right? And they would come back and be like, mm, yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. And, and kind of, it was like this accepted, um, modus operandum in the industry. And I, that for me, that just lit this fire. It was like, here we are trying to be, you know, trying to get farmers to be 5% more efficient with their water, with their energy or with their fertilizers. And yet, you know, they're producing all this food and it's, it's going to, the whole operation is like for naught when half of it's going to waste. So I got super fired up about it and just started doing my own research. And pull together these numbers from all these different places, really hoping to convince my organization, the NRDC, that, that hey, we should be working on this. So I pulled this whole internal report together. It um, never really went anywhere. I sent it, you know, to the head of the organization or thing. It never went anywhere. And finally, I convinced my boss, like, hey, let, can I just, let's just publish this. I've already done all this research. And so that ultimately is what led to the, the Wasted report being published in 2012. And, you know, we had a goal of getting five media hits on it. And um, somehow the report came out the next day, it got put on CNN's breaking mm. news headlines. And I think everyone like must follow each other's breaking news. And so once that happened, it was like, the cat was out of the bag. And, you know, I found myself on like NBC Nightly News the next night having no training. Yeah. And, and it just, it really took off from there. 
Wow, that's wild. So it it had a kind of a long life before it was even a report. And you, it, it sounds like your curiosity was really at the heart of it, of just like, I want to know more. This seems ridiculous. I mean, you kind of beat me to one of my questions, which was, were you shocked when you started to learn about some of these numbers? Like, it sounds like they were eye-opening even to you as someone who had spent some time doing a bunch of environmental research. Oh, completely. I mean, curiosity is kind of a nice way to put it. I was totally obsessed. And because I, once I found out about it, it was like I couldn't, you know, un, unsee it. And I just... You know, for me, I had actually like my sort of academic training was more on energy and energy efficiency. And I just kept seeing this like this super strong parallel between how efficiency was like this main, you know, very core effort in the energy industry. And um, there was no parallel in, in the food industry. Like we had this big efficiency problem and nobody was working on it. Um, so, and, and yes, I mean, the numbers were shocking and I just kept being like, why is nobody talking about this? Is this possibly true? Because if it were, everyone would be talking about this. It would be like this core aspect of how you approach, you know, the food system. And just, it seems so crazy to me, but, and yet every time I would like go down a little channel, um, I would find these other numbers that just kept validating and anecdotes that were like validating it was really happening because Mm. I just, I I felt like, oh my gosh, I'm going to put this report out and it's not going to be true. And people are going to, you know, like I'm going to get us in a lot of trouble. And I was really nervous, you know, not that I thought anybody was going to read it, but, (laughs) and I mean, of everything that happened, I mean, I, I don't think I have ever in the now 10 years I've been working on this. I don't think I have ever heard anyone say it's not happening. Like anyone come back and be like, I don't think these numbers are right, which is actually pretty shocking. That's certainly sobering. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that that validates my experience too, that it seems to be one of these rare environmental issues where there's one, a lot of consensus and also very little polarization. People are generally like, yeah, this is something we really all should be concerned about because it touches on so many other things. You know, it touches on energy and our economy and how we're feeding people and, how our cities look and yeah, just where resources are going. It's such, such a mind blowing problem. I'd love to hear a bit about the numbers. You know, your book is, sorry, your paper rather is full of so many amazing numbers and and stats and facts. And I know obviously the 40% of the food supply one has probably been shared the most, but can you share a bit about like what, what type of data about food waste is out there and, and also kind of where are the holes? Like what don't we know or what would you like to know more about? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. Um, I want to know more about all of it. <laughs> I think the the way the place to start that question, uh, the answer to that question is like, we um, think about how you get that information, right? It's actually really challenging information to get in in some ways. So when you, especially like if you think about how much we're wasting in our homes, how do you, how do you figure that out? Right. And, and actually the, the very few studies that exist, one of which I was um, a close part of, you know, we, we basically surveyed, I mean, here's your, here's your options, right? You can survey people and ask them, except guess what? Nobody has a clue how much they actually waste, right? Or you, they get they get embarrassed and under-report it. Like if you asked me, I'd probably be defensive and be like, well, maybe I like a little bit every now and then, you know? <laughs> totally. I mean, the best statistic out there, which has been proven several, several times over, is that 75% of Americans say they waste less than the average American. <laughs> Right. <laughs> yep. Guilty as charged. Yeah, I know. Totally. And and actually, the studies have found like 
people are under report by approximately 40%. So it's not like just a little bit, actually a lot. Um, so right, you can survey them. You can have them keep diaries so that every time they throw something out, they write it down and weigh it, which, um, is what some studies do, except that, uh, it's, you know, the, people that are willing to actually do that are like a small subset and probably a biased subset. And you don't actually know that they're doing it for everything and, you know, that kind of thing. And then the last thing you can do is dig through people's garbage cans, mm. um, which is costly and, you know, kind of gross and, um, you know, a- another approach. So anyways, and you can only do that. It's just not scalable. You can't, yeah. you know, you just get these like representative, hopefully representative samples. So anyways, you know, when it comes to people in their homes, I would just love like a huge amount of additional information around like what they're throwing out, how much they're throwing out, when, why, you know, what was the root cause of it, that sort of thing, because I think we're still kind of guessing. I mean, not just guessing, it's like an educated guess, but we don't really have solid information on in homes, why people are wasting food and, and kind of what the best solutions are. Um, further up the supply chain, you would think we'd have better information, right? You have a, like, it's a direct cost to businesses. So you would think grocery stores, restaurants have a really good sense of what they're throwing out, but actually they, they don't. Um, and there's various reasons for that. So, um, you know, in my ideal world, we would have like smart bins, and smart dumpsters and they would basically be tracking this information for us. They would have, you know, image, image recognition. So they actually know what's thrown in and they can weigh it and kind of generate real time reports of how much and what's being thrown out, even if they couldn't decide why. Um, so anyways, uh, that's sort of (laughs) where I start on the data question. Um, having said that, you know, we're learning more. There's a lot more research going into it. Um, you know, what else is in and what else are kind of like some of the big numbers. I think one big connection that's being made more and more now is the connection to climate and the opportunity that's presented by um, reducing food waste to really have a positive impact on climate. And that's both um, because it takes so much to produce food and in foods production, there's a lot of um, greenhouse gases, especially for animal products, especially for... um, you know, beef and dairy. Um, And then when we throw that out, you know, all of the emissions associated with that are sort of wasted. In addition, there's methane that's produced in landfills when food gets landfilled and it it rots and methane is a powerful greenhouse gas. So between all of that, um, and then you have kind of land that's cleared, right? When you look at sort of our growing population and the fact that we are eating more food now than we ever had before, and we're eating more meats and we need more land for that. And we're, you know, looking forward to a population in 2050 that's going to need even more food. Um, all of that together, um, between, you know, having to clear land for, for more food, having to, um, just use a lot of energy and and some of the soil interactions that cause greenhouse gases are making reducing food waste a huge opportunity when it comes to climate. And so, um, you know, in terms of data, it's been estimated to to be about 8% of the world's greenhouse gases um, are actually accounted for by food waste. Oh, wow. Which is enormous. Um, And you know, in the U.S., um, our report approximated that it was about 30, the equivalent of about 37 million cars, um, which is, which is huge as well. 
Um, you know, water use. I mean, one of the, (laughs) my favorite kind of depictions of food waste within the U S is that if you were to imagine a farm that was, uh, three quarters, the size of California, um, and used as much water as California, Ohio, and Texas combined, um, and grew food that, uh, was, you know, when it was harvested, was put into trucks every, like big semis every 20 seconds um, for an entire year and then drove around the country, except instead of driving to stores and getting food to homes, it drove straight to landfills. That is essentially what is happening in our food system today. Wow. That's what a dire picture. That's like some (laughs) post-apocalyptic movie intro right there. It's like inverse Gaga land where we're just pumping food to, to the, to going to waste. But it's, it's, it's sad that that is happening in, in a sense. Um, That's really powerful. You know, you have a very awesome kind of bird's eye view of our food system, which I think a lot of us don't have. We're so kind of immersed in our particular chunk of it, whether that's home or the business you work at or the restaurant you work at, you know, holistically through your research, like where are some of the bigger areas that food is currently falling through the cracks? Like kind of what are some of the biggest causes of, obviously it's a very multifaceted problem, but what are some of the biggest areas where like, this is, we have to turn this around if we're serious about food waste? Um, <clears throat> food service is probably yeah. uh, probably number one on my list. And when I say food service, I mean everything from, um, you know, catering and sort of what happens in hotels, um, cafeterias, you know, university dining halls, um, down to restaurants themselves, you know, smaller restaurants. Um, there's just, there's an, an both in in the back, right in the kitchens. So yeah. in a lot of those operations, you know, catering, they're they're they tend to produce like two pounds of food per person for an event when the typical person usually eats one pound of food per sitting. So you know, there was an audit of an eight hundred person event, and they literally found there was eight hundred extra pounds of food <laughs> produced wow. for that event. Um, and so I think you know in that setting, there's huge opportunity. Um, also on people's plates, right? So the restaurants that are just serving a lot of potatoes on the breakfast platter because you're paying $12 for your omelet and they need to make you feel like you're getting your value, right? Yeah. And they tend to do that by filling plates up with lower cost starches. Um, and I think that a lot of people don't eat all of those, right? Especially today when everyone's protein obsessed and carb scared and <laughs> whatever yeah. else, right? So um, I, you know, I think plate waste, as it's called, and kind of overproduction in food service is a huge opportunity area. Um, certainly, households are as well. They're just a lot harder. So mm-hmm. you know, when you look at sort of the pie of, of where all the wasted food is coming from, households are the biggest chunk of that pie. They're the largest contributors. Um, all 330 million of us, you know, wasting little bits here and there in our homes. It's super hard to change behavior. Um, and when you look at things like uh, meal kits, you know, I think there's meal kits, though the packaging, I think, is something that still needs to be worked on. Um, the 
the opportunity they create for people to waste less in their homes is huge. And, mm. and, and, and people aren't doing meal kits because they lead to less food waste in their homes. Um, they're doing them because they're convenient and exciting and whatever else, but they, um, when you think about it, those meal kits are actually planning, you know, they're planning your meals for you. They're doing your shopping for you and they're buying just the right amount of things for you. And I also think that people don't tend to let a whole meal kit just like not get cooked in their homes. Um, you know, once they've kind of gone, gotten that far, they do create a night where they're going to use it as opposed to like the ingredients you buy and you don't really have a plan for, um, might get lost in your fridge. So Um, I think households are a huge opportunity. I think more precise ways of figuring out what households want to eat is an interesting solution. Um, and then of course, where you guys are operating, you know, further up the supply chain, there's huge opportunity on farms and, you know, a recent study came out. Um, maybe you'll post them on your podcast one of these days around farm waste and, I think, again, just like I said about these numbers in general, it's like every time a study comes out, it just seems to verify that, yes, this is like really happening. And, um, and you know, what the recent Santa Clara study did was just really paint a little more color as to like which crops and how much and things like that. But um, I think there's still huge opportunity on farms to find ways to use products that aren't currently getting harvested or used. Hundred percent. I mean, yeah. The, so the Santa Clara study you brought up, I think, is one everyone should read if they haven't. It came up in Fast Company pretty recently, but basically that you know, thirty-three percent of food on the farm level is not even getting picked a lot of times because of a lot of reasons. You know, it's not one just one cause, but it's things like surplus, market fluctuations, labor shortages, and then often the preferences of stores of what they will and won't buy. You know, it's, uh, for farm labor is expensive, and so folks don't want to pick something if they know they can't bring it to market. I, you know, I want to get to the consumer piece because I think that's so helpful and actionable. But, you know, while we're talking about farms, you what can you unpack for folks kind of why farm level waste happens? Because I think it's obviously it's multifaceted, but I think a lot of people are very confused by it because they're like, why would farmers waste food? That's their profits. Or can't they just sell all the ugly stuff to become salsa or soup? Or, you know, is this really that big? I think a lot of people think like, oh, farmers would never waste food because they wouldn't stay in business. So like, how does this problem come to be and how does it end up being as big as 33% of of crops going unpicked? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, farming's complicated. (laughs) (laughs) End of, end of podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Growing the product, maybe that's the easiest part. Um, Well, look, there are, there's a lot of different dynamics, right? And it's certainly, I just want to be clear up front that like, this is not farmers deciding they want to waste food, right? And um, it's farmers reacting to signals that are kind of sent throughout the system. And also, you know, just like the the risk and variability and some of like the inherent qualities that are um, part of farming. So one thing about farming is um, it takes time, right? <laughs> I mean, it takes time. You plant, you know, some some crops are kind of shorter, right? Like greens don't take that long. Um, but, you know, other crops like broccoli, you have to plant months in advance before you have an actual broccoli. If you're t- talking about fruit, I mean, some of those trees get planted four, five, seven years before they're really producing fruit that gets harvested. So it's really hard to predict demand, right? And, um, and farmers are kind of at the onset 
guessing and kind of taking a risk on what they're planting, what their crops are going to be. Um, so when it comes time to harvest, uh, they are often at the uh, mercy of what the market is doing in that moment. Um, sometimes if it's a, you know, if all the conditions are right, you could have a situation where there's just a ton of supply, right? Like everything kind of worked out perfectly and um, all the apples, like the rain didn't hit when the flowers were blooming and, you know, none of like kind of the risks that they're taking along the way to farming happen. And you have a, <clears throat> a lot of supply that year and supply, you know, basic supply and demand, the price goes down. Um, and it costs a lot of money to get product out of the field. So oftentimes you'll have a situation where there's tons of, you know, greens on the market right now and the price is really low and they just like the, what it's going to cost them to pay the guys to harvest, to cool it, to transport it, um, just doesn't match up with what the price is. So that's a, that's probably the most common reason you get entire fields that are not harvested. Um, next you have specifications, which is kind of where you guys at Imperfect have really or at least where you started, right? Which was, um, look, cauliflower, when a little bit of sun hits it, it actually turns kind of yellow on top. That's a totally natural thing. There's nothing wrong with the cauliflower. No supermarket in the country will buy it. Hmm. So, you know, they don't harvest it. But if there's a market for it, a perfectly good, you know, cauliflower, then they will. Of course, you know, there's this expectation out there that, um, that should be lower cost, right? That somehow it's a lower quality product and it should be lower cost, which I think is a frustration um, in that it doesn't cost the farmer any less to produce that product. And if yes. here we are saying it is just as good, right? It just like looks a little bit different. Well, then we should just be paying for it just as well, right? Um, so I think, you know, we as a society have a little like rethinking to do on what quality means and where size and shape and color fit. Um, and our expectations of price and value. Um, but as of now, right, it does kind of fit in the lower quality bucket officially. And, um, and so, you know, where there's no market, they don't harvest it. And then, you know, where there's a bunch of imperfect produce boxes getting sent out and people are willing to, willing to buy that product, they will. Um, labor shortages you mentioned are a huge deal right now, uh, especially with all of the immigration stuff going on and everything. It is really hard um, for, at times, for farmers to find the right labor. And, and to give a little more color to that, um, you know, you might have a crew that can come in and do your main harvest, but not everything is ripe at the same time, right? So you might pay a crew to come in like the first time and the second time, but by the third time, they're actually off harvesting a different crop in a different area. You know, sometimes some of these crews like move around to where the harvests are happening. So either they're not around. Um, so it's not like, and then at other times they literally, I mean, there was a, an episode in Washington recently where I think 25% of the apple harvest didn't get um, harvested because there was just literally no labor to do it. Um, and it's, you know, the, the often it is um, immigrants who are like sort of, you know, have other options than let's say working for a landscaper or in a kitchen somewhere, right? I mean, some of that is happening where some of those other jobs are just paying better. So mm. um, anyways, that's, that's just the beginning, but those, yeah. are, <laughs> those are a few reasons. 
No, that's really great. And thank you for unpacking that. I think it's worth all of us just sitting with the fact that, look, like, especially with something like farming and agriculture, it, you're not going to get a short, simple answer. And that's kind of the point. We all need to like delve further into that in terms of our relationship to food. I mean, I think the point you made about the kind of the delay of farming is huge. You know, it's like most people with their job, you, know, you get paid, you know, every two weeks or whatever cadence you're on. With farmers, a lot of time, they're not seeing the revenue from their initial investment in the land until six, seven, eight, nine months down the road when something, you know, is ready to harvest or with the case of fruit trees. Yeah, it might be a matter of years. And so there's this weird disconnect there that, as you point out, it makes it really hard to time stuff to the market and to demand, especially when you add in curveballs like weather and, you know, it's really hot when you're super rainy suddenly in the winter in a way that it's not normally. And yeah, it just, it throws a wrench in the works. And, and yeah, I just, I love that you're raising awareness about this. I think it's important for folks to, to just, yeah, dwell on that, you know, read more, learn more. And, and also just in a way it's miraculous that we have a rough, uh, you know, a year round uh, produce availability in the U S as it is. And it's remarkable that we can go to the store and find all this stuff, such a bounty year round. And, and, but it's kind of also a, a cost or a consequence of it that there's also a bunch of waste in trying to meet our kind of ravenous demand for, for this stuff. It's kind of a vicious cycle we're caught in, it seems. Yeah, no, completely. I mean, I mean there's a lot to it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But it's worthwhile work. And I mean, I want to get to the kind of how to turn it around angle. And one thing I really love about your career arc is you went from doing some very maybe dry academic research to some really pragmatic stuff that people that aren't reading NRDC issue papers can get involved with immediately. And, you know, the waste-free kitchen handbook, I think is such an awesome example of that for folks that haven't read it or haven't heard about it. Can you walk us through what is this handbook and kind of what motivated you to write it? Sure. Yeah. Um, so waste-free kitchen handbook is meant to be something that sits, you know, on your kitchen counter next to your cookbooks and can be pulled out when you have a question to answer basically. Um, it has, you know, I wrote it because I did get into this from more of an academic 50,000 foot level. And I did keep, um, I just like continuously was getting questions and interest. I, I, I saw a huge amount of interest um, or out there just from people who would like to tell me their stories about how, you know, oh man, you know, I hate wasting food, but, you know, last week I had these tomatoes and I didn't know what to do with them or, um, you know, kind of these little anecdotes about the fact that nobody wakes up wanting to waste food. Right. Um, in fact, a lot of people really hate it, but there was a disconnect between that and kind of what to change in their lives to actually have less food wasted. Right. Um, and some of that was just like very basic information around, um, you know, what date labels mean, right, which we can talk about, or um, if food is really bad, or if they can still eat it, right? That's a super common question is like, can I still eat this? Um, in fact, I almost called the book that. <laughs> can I still eat this? Um, because it just, it's like, you know, people don't know. And of course, if they're worried about it, they throw it out. So the a waste-free kitchen handbook is kind of split into three sections. It has a whole bunch of strategies and just kind of like walks people through, hey, here's, you know, some things to think about as you're, you know, planning your your life around food and, you know, how you manage food. Um, and, you know, it's got little diagrams on like what you can and can't feed to your dog and how to compost, but also, you know, just sort of talks about 
how to plan meals and how to store food and lots of that. Then it has a, a recipe section where there are um, just a handful of recipes that help either people like use everything in their fridge up in a meal. And those are some really basic things like how to make soup, you know, with anything you have or um, tacos, you know, I I think many people who are familiar in the kitchen don't need those. Um, But they're there for those who don't have that familiarity. And then um, there are recipes around like specific items that tend to often go bad and ways to use them up. So for instance, there's a chocolate avocado mousse that Mm. uses up super overripe avocados. Um, there's a sour milk pancake recipe that basically gets people to, um, you know, like understand that when milk goes sour, it actually, there's still a use for it. And, and mm-hmm. really I meant for that recipe to get people away from being so frightened of milk. Cause I find that dairy is a product that, um, there's a lot of fear around, which is ironic because it's probably one of the safest products out there because it's pasteurized mm-hmm. as long as it is pasteurized. Um, um, because that's like, you know, what they call a kill step that actually, um, makes it much safer, right, than, than most use and gets rid of a lot of the bacteria. Uh, so anyways, it has recipes. And then um, my favorite part is actually at the end, it has a directory that goes mm-hmm. through um, like 85 of the most common foods and talks about how long it's at its freshest for, um, you know, what if it has brown spots, can you still eat it? <laughs> you know, and and kind of how do you revive it? If the carrots are wilted, what do you do? And things like that. And that, you know, that's because I think people are missing the really specific kitchen knowledge that helps you use products um, and be familiar with when they're safe and when they're not and things like that. Yeah. I, what a great book. And, you know, and honestly, it's just plug for anyone listening, get a copy, read a copy, get it from the library if you haven't looked at it yet. Cause like, these are the type of fundamental building blocks that I think help all of us, not just waste less, which is huge, but I think also just have a better relationship to food in our homes. Because when you end up wasting food, one, it's expensive. You know, a family of four throws out 1500 bucks of food on average a year. So it's better for your personal bottom line. But I, I found in my life, with an eye to less waste means you make better meals that are more interesting and a lot more creative. Like I've had to kind of stretch my capacity as a cook just to figure out like, yes, stuff that's on its last legs or wow, I really bought too much of that one thing better figure out like a recipe that uses a ton of it. And you, you end up having to grow as a cook, which I think is, is so positive. I'd love to talk a bit about the shopping angle. Cause I think a lot of people get caught in maybe what I could call aspirational shopping where, you know, their eyes get huge when they're at the store or they're, you know, customers customizing their imperfect box or shopping online and they get a ton of something or they get a ton of something that's going to go bad in a couple days. Like how can folks shop and meal plan a little bit smarter to prevent waste? Do you think? Yeah. I mean, plan has kind of become a four letter word in our society in general. right? Um, And so it's hard. I mean, it's absolutely true that if you are somebody who is really good about actually planning your meals, buying to those plans, you know, creating lists that go with those plans and then buying to those lists, you will waste less food. Oh, and you have to stick to your plan also as the week comes, right? (laughs) If you do all those things, like you will waste less food, I guarantee you. Um, Reality is most people are not doing that these days and they're just like not willing to, to sort of 
go there. I don't know, you know, and there. Yeah. Um, so I think you're absolutely right. People are aspirational in their shopping. My like most simple recommendations are a acknowledge that you're not going to cook a few nights a week. And I call them planning in lazy nights because that's for, I think the vast majority of us part of our weekly reality. And we need to kind of at least buy to accommodate that. Right. Um, I like to say, if you're not going to plan for your list, at least, um, like think about when you're going to use what you're buying, right? So whether you're in a store or online, if you you just stop for a second and literally like think about your week ahead and think about what's in your basket and go, okay, when am I going to, when am I going to actually eat that? Like, am I cooking it for dinner on a certain night? Am I, is it a snack for a certain day? Is it breakfast? Like, when am I going to use it? Because if you can't think of a time, it's probably not the best week to buy that thing. Um, and you know, these days there are a lot of, you know, we were talking about meal kits before and there's like things that help approximate those, right? Like, um, some of the online services or different ways that there are meal plans you can kind of buy. And even when you're purchasing food, sometimes they'll kind of help you plan out your meals. And so, um, to the extent that's interesting, I would say that works as well. And then lastly, just like, this isn't shopping, but everyone should have a couple go-to use it up recipes. Yes. Like whether it's, um, you know, stir Fridays, people (laughs) I've heard people do, or, um, you know, whatever it is, frittatas, stir fries, soups, tacos. There's a lot of different ways that you can kind of take a concept and throw anything in. Mm -hmm. And, um, and you do that kind of right before you go shopping. I think you have a much better sense of what you have and, and what you really need. Yeah. That's, that's huge. I mean, I love one where you started the acknowledge your own imperfection. And that's kind of part of the fun of it is, yeah, make peace with the fact that you're not going to make a from scratch meal seven nights a week and all the other meals too. Like you acknowledge that you got to be flexible and that's, that allows you to then find the ways to reduce waste instead of trying to hold yourself to a standard that you can't keep. Cause you know, I found in my life, like any habit, if it's so ambitious that you're not going to actually hit it, that's how it kind of falls apart. You got to like set up that goal that you can actually meet, you know, whether that's like how many days a week you're trying to work out or, or, you know, how much sleep you're trying to get, how, what you're trying to eat. If it's so pie in the sky, you're not going to do it. It's almost counterproductive because then you fail early and then almost just give up. So yeah, definitely. We've got to start with realistic goals. I think that's huge. And then I love what you said about shelf life. I'll just like plug that again for folks. We're, we're doing a, a push on our Instagram right now about you know, like putting spinach first. Like when you're buying spinach, make a party to eat it either today or tomorrow. Because the reality is, especially tender greens like spinach and romaine and baby kale and stuff like that, it's it's going to wilt. Like it's not long for this world. So you can try to fight that and pretend that, oh, I can't eat it till Thursday, so it should last till Thursday. But the reality mm-hmm. is like, you got to prioritize it because like, you know, some herbs and, and greens, they're going to wilt. So you got to put them first. I, yeah, I think that's huge you know, let's talk about the end of the life cycle of food. Let's talk about leftovers and scraps. I think a lot of us overdo it with a meal and we either forget about it or get tired of it. You know, what advice do you have for folks uh, about preventing leftovers waste? Yeah. And the other thing we do is we open something and there's like half a jar left, which I would put in that category as well. So, um, my probably number one, two and three advice is freeze it. 
And I, you know, I like to say we vastly underutilize our freezers. They're kind of like this magic pause button we can put on our food. Um, And I I think people tend to think of their freezers as like long-term storage instead of short-term storage. And I think if you can kind of make that mental shift that you can just put something in the freezer for like three days and then take it out and use it, um, that would go a long way in the leftovers world. We can freeze so many things that people don't realize. So that half jar of pasta sauce you didn't use, like literally you can just put that in the freezer because nobody... Nobody makes pasta and then makes it again two days later. I mean, it's just generally speaking. Yeah. Um, so just, and, and pasta sauce doesn't last that long. So like pasta sauce, the pasta that you made over it, that can be frozen. Bread can be frozen. It's best if you, if it's sliced so that you can take it out kind of one at a time and pop it in a toaster. Um, milk can be frozen. You're going on vacation. You want it like literally when I go on vacation, I open my refrigerator and I put like everything other than fresh produce essentially in it. Um, you know, not condiments and stuff, but I just like, I take the leftovers, I take the milk, you can put cheese in the freezer. Um, this is really eye-opening even for me. We we just started offering dairy products and alternatives at Imperfect. So this is really helpful for me to think about if I've got too much milk or cheese one week, I can and should freeze it. I shouldn't freak out and and just accept that it's going to go to waste. Now, thank you for bringing that up. That's, That's huge. I mean, sometimes, you know, there's like a texture, you sacrifice some, you know, like milk can separate depending on if it's, um, low fat or not. Yeah. Um, beans I've had like not great luck with, but, Mm -hmm. um, like the texture just gets weird. Right. But if your if if your options are like throw it out or kind of maybe have a slightly weird texture when it defrosts, I don't know if you're a perfectionist for me, like sometimes I'm just trying to like feed everyone, you know, something. Um, so I, yeah. So anyways, that's a long way of saying, I think freezers rock and we don't use them as enough. Um, and along with that, I mean, this is more in the buying, but buying frozen vegetables specifically, um, I think is a great way to help yourself not overbuy fresh vegetables and, and fruits. Because if you know that there's like a bag of frozen broccoli in your freezer, that if you run out of vegetables, you'll still be able to have some, um, you tend to like feel less pressure to buy enough fruit and veggies for like the whole week. Um, and frozen veggies often are actually more nutritious because, you know, a frozen broccoli is usually frozen within like four hours of harvest. Whereas the broccoli, you know, you get in the store is seven days old or something by the time it really, you eat it. So, um, that's huge. So, I mean, freezing. Yeah, freezing is huge. And to the veggies point, I would just add, I think especially for really brief seasonal things like berries, getting frozen berries can be really clutch because that way you don't have to feel as guilty about, am I going to eat that carton of strawberries before they get moldy? which is a true shame. Like anyone who's wasted berries knows it hurts the heart and the taste buds to not be able to eat them and have them go like that. If you've got the frozen ones around, like you said, one, they've been flash frozen within hours of picking. And also it's just that extra flexibility of not having to like stress out about when am I going to eat the berries? Like you can eat them on your schedule, which to our point earlier, lets your meal plan be a bit more flexible. You don't have to be like on the strawberries clock. You can kind of be, right. be on, on your clock, which is huge. I mean, from my own life, like I, my big breakthrough has been anytime I have odds and ends of like, especially aromatic veggies, like celery or like carrot tops or like half an onion, or, you know, maybe a stray carrot that's gotten a bit wilted, I'll, um, I'll freeze it. 
And then that'll be my stock base for that month. And then I'll accumulate all of it. And then I'll make a big batch of stock. So like you said, it's not, I'm not indefinitely putting it off. It's like, I'm kind of punting it to like two weeks from now, which is, yeah. which is really helpful. I found really helpful for me. You know, you, you brought up something earlier with the pantry that I think folks want to know more about, but don't know how to discuss, which is expiration dates. Can we just talk about expiration dates? Are they helping or hurting us when it comes to food waste in the U.S.? What's your take on that? Um, they are very misunderstood is my mm. take on it. So I think, and, and it's coming along. You know, I've actually seen awareness shift over um, the... Let's see. We I back at NRDC put a sort of that original report about date labels out in 2013. So here we are, six years later. Yeah. Um. But I do find that people kind of have some awareness around it now. Um. Here's what's important to know. So the dates on food do not mean that it is unsafe or that it's bad. They actually are um, a manufacturer's best guess as to when the product is at its freshest or its best quality. Um, so they are not meant to tell you it's bad um, and they're not meant to say don't eat it anymore. Um, a, a common misconception out there is that we get sick from old food and that's not actually true. So when, when you hear about somebody getting food poisoning or you yourself get food poisoning, it tends to be from a pathogen that was on your food already, regardless mm. of how old the food is, right? So we're t- we talk about E. coli, salmonella, listeria, um, some of these other things. They're, they're pathogens, they're bacteria that are, they're bad bacteria, right? And they can make you sick, but it doesn't, they'll make you sick with the freshest of food, right? And um, it's just a matter of it being on it. You know, when food gets old, it's, um, a different set of bacteria, which tend to be much better bacteria, right? And enzymes that make food decay. And that is not what people get sick from. Mm. Now you might like, and, and your body is very well equipped to know when to not eat food so that you don't get kind of a, a stomach ache or something from it, right? So if it looks bad, smells bad, tastes bad to you, don't eat it. I'm not saying that, right? Um, but if it looks fine, smells fine, tastes fine, and it's just past, a little bit past the date, um, it should be fine to eat. Hmm. And if you have any concern over it, then cook it. Um, so like you have deli meat, you know, there are a few products and I like the shortcut I give people is that if they tell pregnant women to avoid it, you might want to be a little more careful with the date. Um, and those products, you know, when past the date, if you can cook them, they'll be fine. Yeah. So that's my, that's my short way of talking about the date. No, that's, Thank you. No, that's real, honestly really helpful because I, I love what you said that we're kind of in a way uh, misconstruing two different types of bacteria and we're almost like, you know, wrongfully accusing the, the good bacteria or maybe the benign bacteria would be the way to put it for these bad ones that, yeah, as I understand it, they can be on anything. And also a lot of times it's not that it's old, it's that it's maybe improperly stored or improperly handled. You know, if, if you're like touching raw chicken and then touching something else or holding uh, a certain type of fruit or veggie or protein at room temperature for way too long, like when I worked in restaurants, it was known as the danger zone, right? You know, between 42 Fahrenheit and 135, I think it is basically mm-hmm. bacteria are just, it's not safe. Like they can proliferate and, and just take over. So you got to pay attention to how you're handling it. I think as much, if not more than, than these dates. Cause as you said, it sounds like most of them are just kind of cautious recommendations more than hard and fast laws. 
Totally. And their recommendations of when their product's going to be at the best quality. So, you know, they yeah. want it, they want you as a consumer to have a really good experience with their product, right? They want yeah. you to taste it at its best. And so those dates are saying, Hey, we stand by like the experience you have as a consumer yeah. until this date, you know, we stand by the taste and the texture and the quality of this product until this date. That's really what they're saying. hundred percent. You know, I want to get to the speed round here in a sec, but I, I want to end with uh, something I've read in your Instagram, which I just really love. You know, your Instagram bio says you're a food waste warrior or worrier, which I think actually honestly captures very nicely how a lot of us feel about sustainability in the environment these days. So just to end on like, how do you balance the, the anxiety? I think a lot of us feel about our, our carbon footprints in the environment and the need to actually just go out there and make change. Yeah, a question for everyone, right? Um, I I don't know that I have any magic solution. I think what I really like about working in the food world is that I feel like it's um, much more within our control than um, than a lot of other things that are impacting climate and and other environmental issues right now. So, yep. um, you know, generally I. I like to kind of just take that and run with it and just be like, okay, here's where, you know, not just I, but we can all, you know, I mean, I was listening to Greta. I was kind of obsessed with Greta, you know, last week along with everybody else and um, watching, you know, seven of her videos in a row and um, just really getting like riled up, like, what are we going to do? You know? And what I kept coming back to is like, if every one of those kids marching, got their family to reduce the amount of beef they're eating, right? Make sure they're not wasting food and vote. We would be in really good shape. Mm-hmm. And because then those are all things that don't, you know, require like big utilities to get on board or big policies to change or things that just feel like big and slow and heavy. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I keep trying to go to like what's within our control and, and that's where I feel like food is a really, um, just a nice way to act. 100%. Very much in your control and at the intersection of so many other issues. So any change you make in how you eat will have huge ripple effects. Yeah, I, that's, that's a really awesome note to end on. Now we're going to do the speed round, which is some fun questions to end on. It's eight questions, eight small lucky number. Um, it's just a way to get to know you a little bit better and, and find, find out some fun facts. You ready to go? All right, let's do it. All right. Uh, one, is there anything you wish I'd asked about that I didn't or something you wanted to have more time to talk about? Whoa, that's not a speed round. <laughs> <laughs> that's I guess that's kind of a red herring. <laughs> um, yeah, you didn't ask about my kids. They're adorable. Oh, that's Next. good to know. Excellent. <laughs> um, what's a positive change you made in your life in the past year that you think folks listening should try? Mm, um, I moved to a beautiful outdoor place. Ooh, that sounds great. Outdoor time, always important. If you're cooking for someone and you want to make them feel loved, what are you going to make for them? Chicken soup. Mm, I love that. So, so wholesome. What's an ingredient you couldn't live without? Maple syrup. Ooh, lovely. What is your least favorite thing to waste? Oh, I guess meat because I just know how much impact it has. Yep. Totally. What is your go-to karaoke song? Oh, man. It's been a long time. Um, We'll go with I Like to Move It. 
Awesome. And who is someone you admire tremendously and what do you admire about them? I'm going to say right now, Greta. Yep. Because she's just, I, I, she's just so, um, bold and motivating and, and just passionate and unfettered by all the attention she's getting. Absolutely. And what are you grateful for this week? This week, um, well, I'm always grateful that I get to go home to my two incredibly adorable little kids right now and hear my two-year-old make up the cutest sentences in the world. (laughs) That's amazing. Dana, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a true pleasure. Where can folks learn more about you and the work that you do? Uh, yeah, my website is nextcourse.co, not com, but co. Um, and they can find me there. Excellent. And we'll have links to everything we talked about today in our show notes and on our website, unwastedpodcast.com. And if you listening have any questions, comments, or feedback, please shoot us an email at feedback at unwastedpodcast.com. Dana Gunders, thank you so much. Thanks, Riley. It's been a fun, uh, fun podcast. Mm-hmm.